My name is uh, Paul Jeffries. So if you're a visitor, you don't know who I am. If you need a Bible, please uh, raise your raise a hand. Actually, do we have ushers handing out Bibles? Uh, no. Okay, so don't raise your hand because there's nobody handing Bibles out. That's okay. <laughs> um, Anyway, uh, as many of you will know, when I get the opportunity to fill in for Pastor Luke, um, I like to preach through a series, uh, even though the messages may sometimes be months apart. I think the last series took me, uh, I think, two and a half, maybe three years to get through, but oh uh, well. But I do that primarily because I find it exceedingly helpful to have a focus for my own preparation. But I also th I think it brings some continuity for you as the hearers as well, because we're picking up. Uh, something that we've talked about in the past. And of course, I recap if there's been a gap. Uh, when I finished the going through the Psalms of Ascent uh, last year, I started in the fall, uh, I gave one message, and it was an intro to that most weird, wonderful, and mysterious of books, the book of Revelation. And so that is the series that uh, I've kind of picked up and I'm running with. And I'm attempting to do something that I have never done before. And that is uh, because Revelation is ab above my theological pay grade. Uh, and so I am distilling the words and insights of somebody else, a man named Daryl Johnson, whose book, Discipleship on the Edge, um, has opened up the book of Revelation for me in uh, like nothing I've ever read or heard before. So I am unashamedly taking his material, and I will give him credit every time I stand up here, but I'm unashamed really taking his material and filtering it and presenting it to you as best I can because he takes a book that, let's be honest, we don't understand, that most of us completely ignore, and he makes it come alive and he opens our eyes to the message or messages that it contains. And the first thing he points out, and I shared this with you last time, and it was like, you know, scales fell from my eyes, that this is not a book about John, all right? It's not the revelation to John, although a lot of Bibles, it's, it's, it's a heading at the start, revelation to John. Well, it is a revelation to John, but that's not what the book is about. The very first words of the book tell us what the book is about. It is the revelation or the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. That's the book. I'm like, well, how did I miss that all these years, thinking this was about John? Um, and apocalypse means unveiling. It means lifting the lid, pulling back the curtain. It means ripping the roof off so that um, we can um, look at uh, what's behind. Look at a glimpse of who Jesus is. Not who Jesus was 2,000 years ago, but who is he today? Who is he? Now, he's doing this for John at the time, but Jesus is now glorified. This is it. So who Jesus reveals himself to be to John is who Jesus is today. And uh, who he is today is communicated through incredibly vivid imagery. And that's obviously what the, some of the things that confuse us about Revelation. As I told you in my introduction, the message of Revelation is not trust and obey, which tends to be a message of many of the letters in the New Testament, but it's look and listen, especially look. You know, because things in this world are not as they seem. And if we just look at the surface, we, uh, we can make assumptions and, and we miss some things. Uh, Jesus has already won. That second song we sang about how, you know, the, uh, we, 
his power threatens the enemy's camp. No, no, no. He has obliterated the enemy's camp. The battle's over. Jesus has won already, all right? And we need to acknowledge that uh, as we come into this book, you know, with this is who he is today. The, the, he is the beginning and the end. And he wants us to look, wants us to see him as he is, so that as the story of our own lives unfolds, whatever astounding or glorious or wonderful or mundane, difficult or agonizing things that happen to us along the way as we live life, as we see him, we will have the courage to trust him. That's the aim, that regardless of what's going on in our lives, in our world, that we get to trust the one who is on the throne, the one who was dead and is alive, right? Trust him in all of it, through all of it, because he doesn't just know the end from the beginning. He is the end and the beginning and everything in between. To recap, Daryl Johnson divides Revelation into seven sections based around uh, the verb open. There's an intro, you know, a prologue, epilogue, there's this opening vision, and then there's four openings, four windows. And he said to think of them as like uh, Microsoft Windows. You know, you double click and a window pops open, and then we explore what's in that window. And maybe there's some other links that you get to click into and say, oh, there's, so there's, we, we get to explore that together. And uh, I foolishly thought, well, there are seven sections. This will be a seven uh, sermon series. Yeah, no, that's not going to happen. Um, <laughs> Because I've given the, uh, the intro, and this is the first, the first of the uh, you know, revelations. We look at Revelation 1. But um, it's going to be more than seven. I don't know how many it's going to be, but uh, I'll try and keep it down so it doesn't go on forever. Um, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. Anyway, having given the prologue last time, this morning we move on to the opening vision. But before we do that, let's pray together. Father, this book, not just Revelation, but the Bible, we believe is your word to us. And although there are some things that we don't understand, some things that are mystery, some things that perhaps with hindsight we'll look back and, and say, oh, that's what it was. We come believing that it has your authority stamped upon it, that it is your letter to us, and so we take it seriously. So open our eyes to the truths that it contains, especially in this mysterious book of Revelation. Open our hearts to hear what you would have to say to us through it this morning, because we ask it for your namesake. Amen. For refusing to uh, worship Emperor Domitian as God, John has been banished to the rock quarries of Patmos, which is an island off the coast of Turkey. Jerusalem has been sacked. The temple has been razed by the Romans, all right? So it's totally destroyed. Um, and the condition that the temple is in today is the same as it's been since it got destroyed in AD 70. The churches are meeting in secret. False teaching, immorality are gaining a foothold in the churches. And in his mind's eye, as John looks out across the Aegean Sea, I don't think it's too far away to see the coast of Turkey, but uh, he can see the faces of the Christians in the churches that he has lived with and moved among for decades. Christians who are being systematically persecuted, they're losing their homes, their jobs, and in many instances, 
their lives. They are confused. They are discouraged. They are afraid. All of those words could describe people in the church today, right? Because some get discouraged and confused, and there's some are persecuted and, and so forth. But that's, that's what John is thinking about. How does Jesus respond to all that may be going on in John's heart? By telling John to write to the elders to form a task force on political terror. Does he set, uh, tell John to develop a new set of programs to be implemented in the churches? Uh, does he call John to form a resistance movement or just throw cash at him for the church budget? No, he doesn't do any of those things. What Jesus does, he doesn't change anything about the circumstances of the churches and the concerns that John may have or the fears that he may have, what Jesus does is he lifts the cover, he pulls back the curtain, and he introduces himself to John in this astonishing revelation. Unlike us, John didn't have to try and construct a mental picture of what Jesus looked like. We do that, don't we? We've watched movies. We see sandals on the feet, you know, maybe some kind of robe thing that comes down to about here and, and uh, the hair. We, we, we have this image. John didn't have to try and construct anything. He lived with Jesus for several years. He was part of his ministry team, all right? He watched Jesus. He'd been a witness. He'd seen Jesus turn water into wine. Jesus in Jerusalem driving out the money changers. Jesus feeding 5,000, Jesus walking on water, Jesus calming the storm, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus crucified, but then alive after the resurrection. He had seen Jesus in all of these circumstances. He knew exactly what Jesus looked like. Well, at least he did 60 or so years earlier when he had lived with Jesus. But that was then, and this is now. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother and fellow participant in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And after turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and wrapped around the chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have seen the keys, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. 
And as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven angels. Uh, seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so our magical journey begins with this opening vision. This is the first great image of Jesus in Revelation. If you remember what I said last time about seven being the number of perfection that comes up, um, it will come as no surprise to learn there are six more images or uh, visions of Jesus yet to come, all of which present him in somewhat different but equally powerful way. But this is the first one. And what does it say? It says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, Lord's Day being our Sunday. Uh, it would have been a Jewish Monday, because, and it was the Lord's Day because that was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So that was when Christians started gathering, simply because it was Resurrection Day. So on the Lord's Day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like the sound of a trumpet. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. Now, we read the words, I was in the Spirit, and if we didn't know what was coming next, let's pretend we'd never read Revelation before, then we would just assume, oh, he's in the Spirit. It means he's praying or he's worshiping on some part of the island, and he's just communing somehow with God. But because we do know what comes next, that image just kind of disappears. And we think, well, John must be having some kind of out-of-body experience. He's probably floating above the island, and he's having this mystical, amazing, uh, dream-like thing going on because of all that comes next. But he's not, right? Maybe some people have visions like that, but that's not what's happening to John. How do I know? Why can I say that with confidence? Because of what he says next, all right? I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me, behind me, a voice, a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. And having heard the voice, he does what any of us would do if we heard somebody talking behind us. We would turn around to see, who is that? That's what he does. And physically turning around is hugely significant because it means that what's going on, what's happening to John, is not all in his head, right? He's not having some ethereal, some mystical inner vision. Uh, no, no, because if that was the case, he would never need to turn around. But if he hears a voice behind him and he physically turns around, it's external. This is happening in his environment where he is right now. And uh, it's outside of himself. So he turns to discover the source of this amazing voice. And what he sees is a person. It's a person that he knows. It's the same person he'd known 60 years earlier. The person on whose chest he had leaned during the Last Supper when he asked who was going to betray him. But it's not the same person. He's recognizable, but he is staggeringly different. All right? So John, John knew what Jesus looked like, so he recognizes him, but he is different. I turned to see the voice, and I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now, shortly he's going to learn the seven lampstands represent seven of the many churches in Asia Minor that he's familiar with. But it's not the lampstands that arrests him. What grabs his attention is the one in the middle of the lampstands, the one like a son of man. 
Now, you may or may not be aware, I'm sure you are, that the Son of Man is a title that Jesus took on upon himself. It's how he described himself. And he did so very deliberately uh, because not only did it express his humanity, the Son of Man, all right, he took on flesh like us, but also because he knew that for his listeners, it would bring to mind the vision, the prophecy recorded in Daniel 7, where the term Son of Man is used, which Jews would have been familiar with. It says in Daniel 7, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, honor, and a kingdom, so that all the peoples, nations, and populations of all languages might serve him. So what John sees is the glorified, risen Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, his very human master, but in a very different visual form, the ruler of heaven and earth, the one before him whom every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will bow. But having identified him, Son of Man, John then goes on to describe him, all right? So he turns and he recognizes this is Jesus, it's the Son of Man, but, you know, and now he's going he's to describe what he sees. But before we get to that, have you ever wondered, and you know, you'll see why I'm asking this in a minute, have you ever wondered where God is, where Jesus is when the apple cart of your life gets tipped over, when the wheels come off, when whatever's going on, you're like, God, what is happening? Why is this going? Why is this happening to me? What did I do? Why are you allowing this? Those times in life where we're just like, and we don't, we don't seem to get an answer. When it feels like God's on vacation and he must be busy with somebody else's problems because we're flapping around like a fish out of water and we can't find him anywhere. Ever wonder where he is at those moments? I wonder if that is how John was feeling prior to this vision. Where is, where is God? Where is Jesus why is he allowing all these things to happen? Why is this happening to me? I'm an old man. I can't break rocks, for goodness sake. I mean, this is conjecture. But where is God in the midst of those things? Well, Jesus reveals where he is. He is in the middle of the lampstands. He is located, all right, not above them, looking down, He's not outside looking in. He is right in the middle of the churches. And the churches where there is persecution and false teaching and immorality, he is right there. In circumstances where you're in secret and uh, you could lose your life the very next day, he is right there. So it's not a question of, you know, God's up here somewhere or other. Jesus reveals his presence which is why in each of the messages that he has for the seven churches a little bit later on, he can say, I know. I know what's going on. He says to each of the churches, I know your hard work. I know what's happening among you. I know your struggles, he says to this church. I know your fears. I know your pain. I know your emptiness. He knows because he's not far off. He's right there in the middle with them in the church. And we say, well, well, then why doesn't he fix it all? Well, you know, he's not there to fix everything. He's there to be with us as we go through the life. Eventually, it will all get fixed, 
All right, their time will come, but it's not this moment in time. But that doesn't mean he isn't with us. The risen and glorified Christ lives and moves in the center of his church, which means whether we perceive him or not, and it's mostly not, he is here in our midst this morning. He didn't arrive, you know, late. Uh, he is with us always, in fact. It wasn't like, oh, they've gathered, I better show up. No, because he is with each of us. That was the promise that Jesus made. And we know this, all right? This is not new territory. I will be with you, and even until the end of the age, we can quote it. But it's true, all right? He's here. He hasn't gone anywhere. He's here. A thought which on one hand can be immensely comforting if my life is just in turmoil and I'm really struggling. He is here. He's with me. But it's also a thought that can be somewhat terrifying depending on the condition of my heart. All right. This is something that he is with me. Most of my faith is not very felt. People say, you know, well, we felt God's presence here this morning. And a lot of times, and I've heard that in churches, I want to go, excuse me, no, no, I really didn't feel God's presence this morning. I acknowledge he's here. But it's not. So for me, uh, starting about, I don't know, 30 years ago, I would guess, every time I come across something in Scripture where it says that he is with us, I've marked it. I've highlighted it because as humans, we need to hear that. And I needed to hear it multiple times. If you read about Joshua, you know, go and do this. I will be with you. Moses, I will be with you. The prophets, I will be with you. He promises, I will be with you over and over. And so I need to hear that. If they needed to hear it, I knew it's something I needed in my life because he is with me. And I lose sight of that so easily. But here's the reminder of where he really stands. He does. Do I, do I really think he doesn't know what's going on in my life? Of course he does. Of course he does. He stands with me in it. But, but getting back to this, so that's where Jesus is. We go back to the text. Having turned and seen Jesus in the middle of the lampstands, John then tries his best to describe this figure that stands before him. I turned to see the voice, and I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and wrapped around the chest with a golden sash. Now, more often than not, the first thing we notice about somebody else is their clothing, is it not? All right? And we do that a lot of times because they're making a statement through their clothing. All right? Because we may be able to tell by what that person's wearing, well, they just want to be a rebel without a cause. Or maybe through their clothing, well, they're just declaring, I'm a lumberjack. Or maybe they're declaring, I'm a, a football fan of one form or another. They are, their clothing is making a statement. If they're wearing blue scrubs and have a stethoscope around their neck, well, they are, their clothing is making the statement, I am a nurse practitioner or a doctor. If I'm wearing you know, a star on my shirt and I've got a belt with all kinds of gadgets on, it's making the statement, I am a police officer. Clothing makes statements. So what statement is the clothing that Jesus is wearing, making? What does it communicate to us? Well, it tells us that he's clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and wrapped around the chest with a golden sash. So what's, what statement is being made? Well, he's not wearing jeans and a T-shirt. He could have been wearing anything. But he's wearing this you know, robe with a golden sash, 
Well, actually, he's making two statements, I believe. The first being that the robe uh, is a priest's robe. And we, t we tend to think, at least I do, in my mind's eye, we picture the robes as being white, don't we? Well, they were white. Well, actually, priest's robes were blue. So he's wearing this blue robe, and uh, that's communicating loud and clear the statement that's being made, Jesus is a priest. He's not a priest. He is the great high priest, all right? And uh, priest in Latin is pontifex. It's an engineering term that means bridge builder. Um, engineers build bridges to span canyons or rivers to connect both sides. And to do that, they have to survey both sides of the canyon or over the river or whatever it be, so that when it's constructed, they know it's safe and it's secure. So this is a perfect description for Jesus, pontifex, bridge builder, because that's what he came to do. He was able to span the infinite chasm between us and God to make the bridge secure because he surveyed both sides of that chasm. He was fully man and he was fully God. So what constructed, what was constructed through him is a permanent structure, this bridge between us and God. Love that picture. But he's not just a priest. He's wrapped with around the chest with a golden sash. It's not because he won some competition. The priests wore sashes too, but their sashes were just interwoven with golden thread. This is all golden thread, which is the, uh, the material, the emblem of royalty. He's not, he's not just a priest, he's a king. And he's not just a king, he is the king. Again, we know this. He's the king of kings. He's the one before whom all other kings and queens and rulers and authorities will give account. So just in the clothing alone, we discover a great high priest and the king of kings. And that's the first thing that John notices. But then he takes a closer look and he instantly begins to struggle. So that's what he sees. Oh, Jesus, the priest, the king. But then he... He goes from describing the clothing to describing the person who's wearing the clothing, and now he begins to unravel in terms of, uh, he begins to struggle. And he begins to struggle because language is limiting. When we are confronted with something we don't know, that's completely unfamiliar to us, we only have our vocabulary to draw on, don't we? It's not like I'm a walking thesaurus and I'll just pick words random. No, I, only, I know certain words, and so I have to use the words I know to describe something that I have no idea what it is. Uh, if, for instance, I showed up 400 years ago and I was sporting a musket, big old long thing, and you had never seen, you were unfamiliar with what a musket was, you could be forgiven for calling it, oh, a thunder stick or a stick that spits death because those would be the words that you were familiar with to describe something entirely foreign to you. And so that's what, that's what John is doing here. He knows who this person is, but what he's seeing, he's just like plucking words to try and... Uh, describe it. And his word of choice is like, you know, to make a comparison. Well, it was like this, he says. So his feet were like, and his voice was like, and his eyes were like this. Well, I mean, what else can he do? That's all we can ever do. So it's no good complaining that we don't get a nice 4K high definition image of what the glorified Son of Man looks like, because he doesn't have the words to describe it. And truth is, we wouldn't either, all right? Because this is something that's foreign to us. Daniel and Ezekiel had the same struggle 
when they wrote about their visions. So John moves to describing Jesus himself, and he says his head and his hair were white, like, like white wool, like snow, all right? So he's just plucking out things he knows that are white, all right? Now, I don't know about you, but I have never pictured Jesus with white hair, all right? And maybe John hadn't either, but, and it's not just his hair, it says his head and his hair were white, you know? I don't even know what that means. But that's, and he's, so he's using these images. It's, it's like this, radiant white hair. But it's got nothing to do with growing old. Well, it's been 60 years since this in Jesus. Maybe John's hair's turned white. Well, of course he'd have white hair now. He's an old man. No, no, that's, that's not what's being communicated here. All right. Um, his white hair is not a sign of aging as it is for us. It is a sign of his agelessness, his purity, his wisdom, his knowledge. He was there before the world began. He'll be there when it gets rolled up like a scroll. And he's there all the way through everything in between. All right? It's not about aging for Jesus. Um, he is here now in the middle of things. And through the centuries, he's been around through all of it through the rise and fall of empires, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, Spain, Portugal, Britain. He's watched the expansion and collapse of ideologies, humanism, imperialism, communism, apartheid, capitalism. They come and go. They have their day in the sun. There's only one person, one thing that sustains through all time, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is the rock on which they are all eventually broken. And he alone knows what's really going on every moment of every day, in every country, in every city, in every person. He's all-knowing. He's omniscient. He knows it all, all right? But he doesn't grow old or tired or weary. As one commentator put it, I love this, he says, Jesus is perpetually radiant in the glorious youthhood of heaven. What a great phrase, the glorious youthhood of heaven. As I get older, I'm hoping that, you know, I don't go into heaven with a fake knee because I've got one. Um, I'm hoping that I get a glorious, radiant youthfulness back to my life. Maybe, I'll be, well, maybe we'll all be the same age as Jesus. We'll all be 33, the prime of life. I have no idea. But we aren't going to be the way we are right now. But the Lord Jesus uh, is... Um, radiant in the glorious youthhood of, of heaven. And we can trust him. Even though we don't understand what's going on in the world in which we live, in my individual life, in my you know, town, city, state, country, what's going on in Ukraine or Israel or North Korea or China, or, we don't have to understand it all, but I can trust the one who knows the end from the beginning. He is trustworthy. His head and his hair were like white, or like white wool, like snow. And his eyes, his eyes were like blazing fire. Now, let's be clear. His eyes weren't actually blazing fire. There wasn't fire shooting out of his eye sockets, okay? They, it, was, it was like, it's just John trying to describe it, all right? What does that communicate? Well, we find fire mesmerizing, don't we? If you ever sit around a campfire, which uh, most of us have done at some point, and you have a conversation with the group that's there, be it small or big. Nobody's looking at one another. We're all looking at the fire, 
aren't we? Because there's, there's just something, we're drawn to it, and it captures our attention. And uh, we may look up here and there, but mostly we're focused on the fire. And I think that speaks to one of the things, you know, the fire from Jesus' eyes. I think Jesus would be incredibly difficult to look away from as we look at those eyes uh, because they would capture us. We will be mesmerized by them in a good way. But secondly, we're told that eyes are the windows to the soul. So why is Jesus' soul like a blazing fire? Well, think about what fire does. All right? Fire consumes, it burns up anything that is burnable, and it refines, purifies anything that isn't burnable. And I think that is a part of the imagery in here as well. Fire will burn the gunk off your grill before you slap on any more burgers, so we know it gets rid of stuff, but it will also refine the purest of golds, you know, because it won't burn gold, but it will purify it, and the crud will come to the surface so we can scrape it off. And uh, why is Jesus' soul like a blazing fire? Well, I think that it, uh, it communicates that not only it looks at us, but it looks through us as well. Revealing his soul, but illuminating ours, shining on what's within us. Not to scare us, not to embarrass us, although it might do both of those, but to refine us, to burn away the junk that may be ruining our lives things that we would gladly give up, gladly give up. If we knew what he knows about their effect upon us, we would get rid of them in a heartbeat. But we tend to miss that, and so we hang on. He wants to burn away the false belief that we cling to, the masks we hide behind. He wants to burn away the behaviors that we try to justify. And although his burning gaze may be painful, he's only doing what he told us he would do was just to make us holy, pure, fit to come into the presence of a holy God, to make us like himself. Eyes like a blazing fire. And his feet, his feet were like, well, they were like bronze glowing in the furnace. John moves from Jesus' head to his feet because there's a robe in between, and he's mentioned that already. So he goes from head to feet, and it's like bronze glowing in a furnace. What's that got to do with anything? Daniel says the same thing in Daniel 10. His face was bright like lightning, and his eyes were like flaming torches, and his arms and feet gleamed like polished bronze. What is he communicating through this? As, as John sees him, he's got feet like molten bronze. Well, bronze in the Old Testament speaks about the righteous judgment of God. It represents, in fact, sacrifice for sin. Bronze represents sacrifice for sin. This is revealed in the instructions for building the tabernacle and later the temple. Now, the tabernacle, if you don't know, was the tent that God told uh, Moses to construct so that the there was a place of meeting. God had a place on earth where people could go to meet with him. We don't have that anymore. Because God has come to indwell us. He says, I will be, you know, my kingdom is within you. That's what happened when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. But prior to Pentecost, God's presence on earth, well, there was a place to go meet him. And it was the tabernacle, the, the place of meeting. And then the temple, because they did away with the tabernacle and they built a hard copy version of it. That was where we were to go to meet him. And there were instructions 
And everything inside where you met God was made of gold or overlaid with gold. All right? There was the menorah, the candlestick, the altar of incense, the table of showbread, and the Ark of the Covenant. That was all gold. Everything outside the temple was made of bronze. The, uh, there was some rituals you had to go through. You see, to, to enter the presence of God, you couldn't just waltz in there. You had to be cleansed. And you had to be cleansed both by blood and by water. The blood was the blood of a sacrifice that was made on a bronze altar outside the tent of meeting, outside where God's presence, using bronze utensils for this sacrifice. And then the water was a ceremonial cleansing using water from an incredibly large basin called a laver. And it was mounted on these four cast bronze bulls. It was this giant uh, basin. So you had to be cleansed by water and by blood in, with, with bronze implements, then you could enter into the presence of God where everything was gold. So bronze represented God's judgment of sin that had to be dealt with first. With that in mind, then, perhaps it's not a surprise to discover that Jesus' feet look the way they do, like the glowing bronze in a furnace, because he himself was the sacrifice, the one who cleansed us. He was the one who died outside so that we could enter in. And so he has these feet like glowing bronze. And then Joel says in his voice, his voice was like the sound of many waters. Ezekiel describes it this way. He says, and I saw the God, the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east and his voice was like the roar of rushing waters. I don't know what the voice of many waters, rushing waters, what image conjures up? I mean, maybe it's the roar of the ocean, all right? Maybe it's the, uh, the thunderclap of a waterfall. Maybe it's the crashing of white water rapids. Whatever it may be, Jesus is trying to communicate something just through the sound of his voice that John is hearing. I believe, actually, that they all communicate uh, the, the images that we have of this force of water. Two things. First of all, I think his voice conveys astonishing, awe-inspiring power. If you've ever been to Niagara Falls, you can go down and stand right next to one of the falls, and, and it's overwhelming. I mean, the thunder of it all. It's just the power that's there is, it makes you feel very small, right? So there's this thundering voice that God has. But the second thing is that there's also a peace. Think about this. When we why do we want to live by water? Why do we put fountains in our yards? There's something about the sound of water. You live by the ocean. A crashing you know, ocean helps us sleep better at night. You know, there's a contradiction. But that's what the sound of water does. And I think there's this, this sound of power and of peace that is there with the voice of the Lord Jesus. No one ever spoke the way this man speaks, they said of Jesus at the time. And I don't think that's changed. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. John is later told that the seven stars represent the seven angels or messengers of the seven churches and that Jesus has a message for them. But that's a different message entirely. We're not going there. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. So he's got seven stars. Remember, seven, you know, the perfection. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. 
William Barclay notes that the word John uses for sword isn't some narrow fencing blade, right? It's the short tongue-shaped blade used for hand-to-hand -hand combat by the Romans. And uh, it's for fighting up close and personal, which I think is also deliberate. I like that. When Jesus speaks, he gets right up in our grill, right up in our face in terms of how he is going to communicate to us, where his words can cut through all the mumbo-jumbo that we've bought into and the nonsense that we've listened to, all the lies and misinformation that we've been drip-fed by the world we live in. What comes out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus slashes through our willful resistance. It divides what's good and true from all that's destructive and evil so that he can establish truth and righteousness in those he calls his own. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face, his face was like the sun shining in all its strength. Again, I can feel John reaching for words to convey what he's seeing. You know, his face was like, it was, it was like the sun. Yeah, but no, no. It was like the sun, the sun at midday, the brightest possible sun you can imagine. That's what his face was like. And uh, here's a wonder. That face, that radiant, you know, overpoweringly bright face is directed at John. That dazzling, awesome face shining on him, which in fact was one of the greatest blessings that any Jewish person could possibly imagine. And it would be the same for us. We use a phrase a lot of times, so a lot of churches use it as a benediction, but Numbers chapter 6, that very well-known expression uh, that we, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. Why does he do that? Because his face is shining like the midday sun. May his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Yeah, that's the image. And that face is what John is seeing. And his response, verse 17, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And who can blame him? For the first time in his life, John is seeing Jesus as he really is right now. And it flattens him. Totally flattens him. But I love what Jesus does next. He doesn't say, what are you doing? Get up. You know, no, he doesn't rebuke him. doesn't command him. He simply says, he simply reaches out. We don't have it recorded, but it's almost like I can hear Jesus saying, John, because he says he reached, puts his hand. The hand that held the seven stars reaches out. Such a Jesus gesture. He is constantly touching people when he's ministering in his years on earth. And here he is, he reaches out uh, and touches John. And he says, um, don't be afraid. John, my beloved disciple, doesn't say that, but that's what I'm hearing. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what? Well, maybe the image that he's seeing there and then, because that would be pretty terrifying, I think, because it's knocked him flat already. But don't be afraid. But more than that, 
Don't be afraid of what's going to happen to the churches. Don't be afraid of what is happening to the churches. Don't be afraid because Nero is covering Christians in tar and setting them alight to light his garden parties. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the persecution facing the Christian community. Don't be afraid of the future. Don't be afraid of death, of what you're about to see. Don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of the end of the story. John, John, you don't need to be afraid. Why? Because I'm with you. I'm with you in this. And all this is going to go away. Don't be afraid. I was dead. I walked into the gaping jaws of your greatest enemy, death. And behold, I am alive forevermore. I burst that prison we sing. I plundered that grave. I carried away the keys. Fear no more. I am alive. And then verse 19, Therefore, Jesus says, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. Write them down. And that's what John does. And that's the book that we're looking at and exploring. And then... Jesus, while standing in the middle of the seven lampstands, goes on to dictate messages to each of the seven churches. Well, well it's, we're not doing any of that today. But uh, all of that takes place, this vision that John has. If there's anything that I take away from this, because remember, these aren't my words. These are the words of Daryl Johnson. I want our, to affix our, our, our focus on Jesus because the first thing we see behind this very thin veil that separates the seen from the unseen is the glorified risen Son of Man. And he's right here. He's not up there. He's not off in some distant planet. When the veil's pulled back for John, he's right behind him. Why is he behind him? Probably most of the time because we're looking the wrong way. John, I'm over. Oh, oh, oh okay. Because that's what we do, don't we? We get, you know, oh, I think I'll go this way. John, you know, and I turn and there he is. Jesus is here. He is with us. And uh, that's what we have to hold on to. He is the great unseen reality of our present. He stands at the center of his church, clothed in the robe of a priest and a king, with hair white as snow, eyes blazing fire, feet like liquid bronze, glowing with righteous judgment, with a voice like the roar of an ocean, and out of his mouth comes the two-edged sword of truth that cuts through all the lies, all the deception, like a hot knife through butter, and his face is like dazzling, like the midday sun. Just as Jesus did with John on that day, he turns his face to us this morning because, again, the veil prevents us from seeing him but he's here. He is here. Molten light spilling over our fear-ridden faces as he reaches out and he places his hand on me and he places his hand on you and he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I was dead. But look, I am alive. I am the first and the last I don't know if you've ever thought about this. It only occurred to me. I wrote this in even after I finished the message. But one day, what happened to John is going to happen to each of us. Because one day, we will meet him face to face. 
and we will see him, and I think there will be a palpable sense of power and glory, purity and brilliance, and I wholeheartedly believe we will join John on the floor in awe and worship. I can only imagine what that day will be like. Father, whatever season of life we're in, whether right now we are celebrating and delighting in what's going on in our lives, in our families, in our work, in our friendships, or whether we are struggling deeply with issues that have plagued us for years, with uh, people who are provoking, persecuting, irritating for no reason. Or maybe it's a physical thing. There, we have so many different things that can distract us. But right behind the curtain, there you are, the resurrected, glorified Son of Man standing there with us 
in it all. May we find strength as we leave this place today and head out into the rest of this day and the coming week and this new year. May we walk knowing that we walk with you. We don't leave you behind. We don't just wait for you to show up again next Sunday. You are with us every moment. And we can find strength and comfort. And most of all, we need not be afraid. The worst thing we can happen is we die. And we meet you face to face. First one we see as the curtain of this flesh rolls away is you. So give us strength to live and give us um, the faith to be able to trust regardless of anything and everything that comes our way as the path of our life unfolds. We ask you to do this for your kingdom's sake, for your name's sake, for your sake we pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll return to Revelation next week, but uh, have a wonderful, faith-filled week. If I gained the world, it would never